Thanks, Tony and Lauren. Well, who voted for Psalm 19? Oh, there's one over there. Two. Everybody else can go, you two guys. We'll just... <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a second in our series, but it's the first psalm that we're looking at that you voted for as a congregation. It is a beauty. So how about I pray and then we'll look at it together. Father, thank you so much for your word, for what it reveals about you. And we thank you for David for pouring his heart into these words. And I pray now, Lord, that you will speak to us through them as well. Amen. Physicist Freeman Dyson. There he is. Professor Emeritus in the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Okay, so he's a high flyer. He said this. The more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. He's talking about the way that the universe and this planet is designed for human life. Fred Hoyle, he is a theoretical astrophysicist, very famous man, said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintelligent has monkeyed about with the physics. Uh, that's his inimitable way of saying there's a superintelligence that's designed the laws of gravity, the laws of physics. The world-renowned philosopher, Anthony Flew, get this, folks, he was a poster boy for the New Atheists and he carried out a philosophical attack on religion for many, many years. And imagine the shock and horror of the new atheist when he became a believer in God because he saw the complex design in the universe. He subtitled the book he wrote about it, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And this is what he said. I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. How about that? Alan Sandage, widely regarded as the father of modern astronomy. You know, I've noticed I'm picking up people from all the disciplines. He won the Crayford Prize, which was astronomy's equivalent of the Nobel Prize. He said this, I find it quite impossible that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organising principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Why there is something rather than nothing. How about that, eh? Even Charles Darwin, in his book, The Origin of the Species, from the second edition onwards, said there is a grandeur in this view of life, talking about evolution, with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one. So even Darwin saw the wonder of creation and said there must be a creator. King David back in 1000 BC, wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. You ever stood on a a clear night where there's no clouds, far away from all the ambient light, maybe out in the bush somewhere or the Warrumbungles, wherever it might be, and had a look up at the stars and been struck by the grandeur and the might and the infinite stretch of it all. See, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or someone who believes in God, the night sky is a wonder to behold, isn't it? The universe is magnificent. It really is. But David saw more than just its magnificence. 
David said, they declare the glory of God. And what exactly about the glory of God do they declare? Well, he goes on and says they proclaim the work of his hands. They point out the fact that God created them. That's what he says. But creation doesn't do that for everyone, does it? The Psalms don't do that for everybody. This Psalm speaks to the heart of believers, but not to the hearts of those who don't believe. Because there are many people in our world who look at the magnificence of our creation and don't see God's hand. Go with me to Romans chapter 1, the Bible reading we had. This is what St Paul says in Romans 1, talking about the creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. See what he's saying? See the implications of what he's saying? When you look at creation, you see God's eternal power and his divine nature, he says. When you see the beauty and the intricacies of the world in which we live, we can see the hand of the creator. Paul says the same thing in Acts chapter 14 when he's talking to the people in the town of Lystra. This is what he says. In the past, talking about God, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. He's saying you can see people of Lystra from from the evidence of the creation around you that God is the great provider. Now, we know more about the universe today than David did, don't we? Much, much more. But that doesn't mean to say he knew nothing. We have this, uh, this weird view that because we have more knowledge in the 21st century, we are wiser than people in the past. It's just not true, is it? If I were to ask you, who are the great philosophers, the great minds of the history of mankind, somewhere will come Plato and Aristotle. Somewhere will come some of the great saints of the past because wisdom is not confined to knowledge. In fact, do you know the Bible tells us King Solomon was a naturalist? King Solomon was a scientist. This is what it says in 1 Kings 5 about King Solomon. He studied and described plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop plant. From the tallest trees to the smallest plants, King Solomon taught people about them. And it says he taught about animals and plants and reptiles and fish. King Solomon knew much about the created order around us. We can conclude, says the psalmist and says Paul in Romans, we can conclude from the world around us, from the power displayed in creation in the storms and the earthquakes and and the hurricanes and the rain that falls and the crops that grow, that God must be all-powerful. And we can see from the detailed design of creation that God is a planner and a designer. The first engineer for you engineers amongst us. And yet not everyone sees those things, do they? Paul says, for although they knew God, So this is they see God in creation for although they knew God, isn't that interesting? 
they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. He says that God can be seen in his handiwork, but people refuse to give him the credit. He says everybody can see God in his handiwork, but not everybody is willing to give him the credit. People can see enough of God in creation, he says, that they are without excuse. It's not that they can't see God in the things that he has created, but that they refuse to see God in the things that he has created. That's what Romans says, isn't it? Have a look at it closely. Study it when you get home. There is no excuse for people to say, I didn't have enough evidence to believe in God. Their Bible is saying, as I read it, as I read Psalm 19, as I read Romans, there is no such thing as innocent ignorance. If you are not for God, then you deliberately ignore what he has revealed of himself to everyone. That's what Romans says, isn't it? Since what may be known about God is plain to them, but although they knew God, uh, back previous slide, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor God thanked him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. No such thing as innocent ignorance. If people do not believe in God, it's because, so the Bible says, they deliberately hide the truth from themselves. You are either for God or you deliberately ignore the evidence he's saying. There is no middle ground. It's a tough word, isn't it? I wonder if that fits with your worldview. David says that the creation pours forth speech day after day and night after night. Some people like to speak of the natural world as their cathedral. There's some truth in that, isn't there? I don't know about for you, but there certainly is for me. Cathedrals were built to fill people with awe and wonder. When the great cathedrals were built, they were the biggest buildings in the whole of that area, in the city. They were the tallest buildings. And they were built on a grand scale, not because they wanted to display the wealth of the church, but because they wanted to give people a sense of the wonder and awe and the magnitude of God. I had the privilege some years ago now to, to go to St Paul's Cathedral in London. And I'm a bit afraid of heights. But I did climb up the little stairway to the bottom of the dome. I know you can climb up to the top of the dome, but I didn't. I didn't have the courage. But to stand at the bottom of the rim of the dome of St Paul's Cathedral and to see this magnificent structure around you and see how small I was and how what a long way down it was. Magnificent. And, and I noticed when people walked in, they started speaking in a whisper because there's something of the, of the awe and the magnificence and the power that, that reminds you of your own insignificance in one of those mighty buildings. And that's just a building. That is not the mighty God of the universe. That's just meant to help us to understand him. And for me... There is nothing more rejuvenating than spending time in the bush, surrounded by the natural world. It, it, it makes me want to read my Bible and it makes me want to pray. I always feel led to read my scriptures and to pray when I'm out by myself in, in God's creation. David says that the creation, the heavens have no speech. They use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth 
their words to the end of the world. There is nowhere where people can say, I cannot see anything about God. Goes to the ends of the world. People may not have heard about Jesus. They may not have even heard of the one and only God. Who knows? But no one, according to the Bible, can make the excuse that they were given no evidence for the power and majesty of God. People are without excuse. You see, there can be two responses to the wonder and power of creation. The first response, there must be a creator. Is he not wonderful? Is he not magnificent? Is he not to be feared and respected and honoured and thanked? And the other denies that there is a creator, denies that he has a right to rule even if he did exist. And even though they suspect that he's real, they refuse to thank him or acknowledge him. That's what the Bible says. Romans knows nothing of the excuse, what about those who never heard of God? I take it that people who acknowledge God's right to rule and who cast themselves on his mercy will be saved whether they know of the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Because they're in the same place as Abraham, are they not? Who knew nothing of Jesus. Who knew very little of God, really, but trusted God. And because of that, God declared him righteous. David, however, who wrote this psalm, he's a true believer, isn't he? Not that Abraham wasn't a true believer. But for him, the created order screamed out about God and God's power and his majesty and his glory. In verse 4 and 5, he says, even the sun does God's bidding. And we know that many of the surrounding nations worship the sun as God. The Egyptians worshipped Ra, the sun god. What, what is... David's saying here in Psalm 19, no, the sun is not a god. It just does the real God's bidding. It's all about the glory of God. The heavens display the glory of God, he says. I want to just focus on that for a few moments. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is all about the glory of God. The Bible says God created you for his glory. The Bible says that we are to do all things for his glory. The Bible says Jesus died on the cross for God's glory. Yeah, because he loves us, but he loves us for God's glory. He saves us for God's glory. Even God's wrath is to display his glory. See, that's the motivating force for all of God's actions. If you think you're at the centre of the universe and that God created the universe for you and that Jesus died because he loves you, both of those are true, but they're not big enough. The big picture is it's all for God's glory. God loves you for his glory. That is the motivating force of all of his actions. God created this universe for his glory. And that's not God having tickets on himself, by the way. <coughs> Great book by a guy called John Piper called Desiring God. Every Christian should read it. Because it helps us to understand that God says, you need to worship me and I need to be glorified, not because I've got tickets on myself, but because that is the way to real life. 
You see, if God is the perfect supreme being, what is he going to take in delight in above everything else? Perfection. He's got to delight in his own being if he's worth worshipping and honouring. If he is totally good, he can only glorify and glory in what is totally good. And he calls us to join him in that because that is what we were made for. That is why the universe exists, for his glory. But David doesn't leave it there. <clears throat> in verses 7 to 11, he moves on to the word of God. So verses 1 to 6, all about the glory in the heavens and the universe. Verses 7 to 11, about the glory of God and his word. See, creation can only take us so far. It can only tell us about God's, God's magnificence and God's creation and God's power. It doesn't tell us about how to get right with him, but his word does. The word of God. Uh, so we call the creation general revelation and we call the word of God special revelation. One's general, everybody gets it. The other is special and more detailed. And David has six names for the word of God in this psalm. There they are. Six names. There, there are a lot more in the Bible. The law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord. Remember, as Stephen pointed out last week, if you were here, when the king was appointed and anointed king over Israel, he was to write out the first five books of the Bible. He was to write out longhand, no printing press, no computers in those days, for himself, it says, a copy of the law of God. That's what he had to do, because he had to live by it. Can you see David night after night with his candle and his, and his quill or whatever they used in the papyrus thing, writing out the whole word of God? Would you ever do that? You see, he, that was to make sure he knew the word of God, that there was no excuse when he doesn't rule the way the word of God says. And that's what he's got. And he describes six characteristics of the word of God. Look at them. He says it's trustworthy. It is right. It is radiant. It is sure and altogether righteous. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. First five books. Did you read the book of Leviticus? Leviticus? And say, oh, it's sweeter than honey. Seriously. Deuteronomy? And he tells us six things the word of God does. Look at them there. It revives the soul. It makes the wise simple. It gives joy to those who he joy to those who hear that. I spelt that wrong, didn't I? Uh, it gives light to the eyes. It warns, and in keeping His word, there is great reward. Again, first five books of the Bible. I'm not talking about the New Testament here. We're talking about a bit of the Bible that we very rarely ever read. Isn't that right? A bit of the Bible we go. That's irrelevant for today, really. No need to read it. And, and stuff in there is a bit wrong, you know. It's a bit primitive. We know we get the New Testament. Things have changed. and That's not David's view of the Scriptures. You know, I read this psalm, Psalm 19, and I know at least two of you do as well. And I want to say, yes, I agree, David. That's how it is for me too. That's how it is for me. One of the great things about the psalms, is it not, is that they speak to our souls. It's a great reminder when things aren't going well that God is in charge. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's a great reminder that I can turn to God's word to bring light and comfort and wisdom and joy. 
It does all those things. And it teaches us to pray. We have here in the book of Psalms 150 prayers to God, sanctioned by God. Got God's housewife uh, tick of approval. So if you want to know how to pray and to be heard, you can pray through the Psalms. And there is not one emotion, not one part of a stage in your life that isn't covered by at least one of the Psalms. And one of the great tragedies in our Anglican current day way of doing things is that we don't read the Psalms together anymore. It used to be part of our liturgy. You would always read one or two Psalms together. Psalm 19 was always one of them. We'd always read Psalms together. We'd work our way through the Psalms and say them together week after week after week to teach us how to pray. But you know, I wouldn't be telling the whole truth if I said the word of God was always, to me, more precious than gold. I wouldn't be telling the truth. And I wouldn't be telling the truth if I was to say it's always sweeter than honey. Because there are times when it's not. There are times when it convicts us of our sin. There are times when we read what it has to say and some part of us says, I wish you hadn't said that, God. Or at least that's the case for me. Because that does not sit well with my culture. That does not sit well with my upbringing. There are those precious times when it is sweeter than honey, aren't there? If you have accepted the Lord Jesus as your saviour, you'll know that. There are times when it feeds something deep, deep inside your, your being. But there are other times when it's not like that. And I'm not sure that I could say that in keeping God's word there is great reward either. Sometimes. But sometimes keeping God's word has led to loss and pain. Sometimes God's word has tasted bitter. Like when in obedience to God's word I've had to say or do something that has angered people or upset people or I've not done something they want me to do because of the word of God. Those times make God's word seem a little bitter in some ways. Because it's not always as simple as it sounds, is it, to pray the Psalms? It's not always as simple as it sounds. And it must have been that way for David as well. You know? He didn't always find God's word sweeter than honey, did he? After he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and had her husband killed, the word of God comes to him through Nathan the prophet. Because of what you have done, your son will die. And the Bible says David mourned up until the time the child was born. God's word was painful. Not sweeter than honey. Not in some sense of the word. But that's why he goes on in the next few verses. Have a look at them. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. I take it the hidden faults are the things he does wrong that he doesn't realise he's doing wrong. And willful sins, well, they speak for themselves, don't they? So, so here is a plea from King David. God's appointed ruler of his people that God have mercy on him. Remember Stephen's sermon last week on Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Blessed is the righteous person. 
And David here is admitting he doesn't fit that bill. He's not a righteous person. Lord, forgive me my faults, my sins. He wants to be innocent and blameless, but he's not. Verse 13 says that he'll be blameless when his sins don't rule over him. Well, good luck with that one, David. When your sins don't rule over you, you'll be blameless. Good luck. But it's still a great thing to pray, isn't it? Isn't that still a good thing to pray? Doesn't it echo the desire deep in your heart if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, please forgive me. I want to be a righteous person. Does that not resonate? Well, sometimes. Often, I hope. But if we're honest, there are times when sin does rule over us and we want nothing to do with God's word. Is that not true? We want to ignore it. We know what we're about to do or say or think is contrary to God's word, an affront to him, an affront to his spirit, and we say, leave me alone in my sin. And so we can pray this prayer with David, can't we? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. What a great prayer for us to make our own, eh? But you know, we can only pray that prayer confident that God will hear us because of the righteous one. Because of the one for whom the word of God was always sweeter than honey. Because of the one who didn't have to pray, Lord, forgive my hidden faults. But who still probably prayed it because he stood in our shoes. From the one who always heard God's voice in creation and did everything he did for the glory of God. So, for instance, in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prays just as he's about to be arrested and to face his crucifixion, and he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, so that your son may glorify you. What I want God, even in this time of anguish, is to glorify you. And in verse 4 he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He came to die for you and I in order for God to get the glory. And here is the wonder of Jesus. Okay, here it is. If we are in him, if we are joined to him by faith, that is, I trust that his death on the cross was for me, in my place, the Bible says if we, if we are joined to him, if he gives us his spirit, then his perfect life, his continual glorification of God, his 33 years of total obedience to the Father while he walked this planet, all of that becomes ours. All of that becomes ours. So when we fail to treasure the word of God, when we fail to live in obedience, when we let sin rule over us and ignore the word of God, we are righteous in Jesus. His righteousness is ours, says the Bible. So we read the Psalms and part of us resonates and gets yes and part of us goes, I could never be like that. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who completely fulfilled all the Psalms 
who walked in righteousness all the days of his life, who always treasured the word of God, and for him it was sweeter than honey, who always acknowledged God in the created order, his righteousness is now ours if we put our faith in him. What what a magnificent saviour he is. His righteousness is mine. And so I pray, God, forgive my faults and forgive my hidden sins and I don't walk the way I, I know I should and I don't always treasure your word. But Jesus' righteousness is my righteousness. And so, folks, I want to encourage you today. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Let the prayers of the Psalms be your prayers, knowing that Jesus has already done it all for us. Let's be a people of praise and thanksgiving. Let's be a people who declare the glory of God and treasure his word and confess our failure to do all those things completely but resting in the sure knowledge that Jesus has already done it all and that if I put my trust in him, his righteousness is mine and I stand before God cleansed and pure and declared righteous. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for David, for these mighty words of his psalm, but also for his life, that we can see that warts and all he loved you. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the true David, the one for whom all the words of this psalm were true, fulfilled, And thank you that we have that, that we have his perfect life overlaying ours, that his his credit is now our credit. Thank you so much for this wonderful gift. And I pray for those this morning who, who don't know that, for those who have not put their firm trust in this wonderful Lord Jesus who has walked the life for us. Father, I pray that you will draw them to yourself and they will know the wonder of your grace and forgiveness. Amen.